Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship, colon, the slow degeneration of Professor Kozlowski's sanity. Um, today, though, we are not going to be engaging in more degeneration of Professor Kozlowski's sanity, except insofar as this entire class and the structure of the class going forward may very well be a product of my already pre-existent insanity. Um, to clarify, today we are talking about what I call neo-Christendom. Um, we are going to look at 20th century Christian perspectives on love and friendship, um, which means we are kind of doing something fairly different from what we have done thus far, which is fine, because the last two weeks of the class are going to be devoted to a completely different perspective on all the stuff that we've talked about so far. Um, our discussion of the history of philosophy from the Old Testament up to Freud has concluded. And now we are talking about the 20th century. And on some level, I do want to kind of talk about the history, and today seems like the logical place to do it, since Lewis and Chesterton are astonishingly straightforward as far as their attitudes towards love and friendship are concerned, and thus require very little explanation from me as far as I'm concerned. Um, but also just because we are going to be looking at the 20th century, and because the 20th century is so diverse and so just robust with different perspectives here. Um, I want to approach the 20th century differently from the history of philosophy as we've discussed it so far. The 20th century isn't just a moment in history. It's our moment in history, and it is aware of its significance as being this sort of at least contemporary capstone to all the history that has gone before. Um, in some sense, all of the philosophers we've talked about, all of the philosophies they've conjured, all of their attitudes about love and friendship have been the product of all the history that has come before. Um, Plato was remarking on pre-Socratic philosophy. Aristotle was commenting on Plato. Cicero was commenting on Plato and Aristotle. Aquinas is, is commenting on Christianity, Plato and Aristotle and Cicero and everything that's gone before. And indeed, the romantics in the 19th century philosophers that I got so worked up about, as much as they are very much casting off their philosophical roots, they are too responding to Plato and Aristotle and Christianity and all of the other philosophies that have come before. The 20th century is very much participating in the same thing. But just as I have counseled you in the past couple of classes to sort of be aware of the alternative perspectives that are available to you, the 20th century is aware of those perspectives, of these competing attitudes. What we are essentially talking about here, whether backdoor or not, is postmodernism. Um, and thus far, I've kind of mentioned every time that we jumped from one major sort of philosophical movement, one major historical outlook to another. Um, I talked about how we moved from the ancient perspective to the medieval perspective with Augustine, and how we moved from the medieval perspective to the modern perspective with Dante. I didn't really talk about the jump between modernism and postmodernism. And while Goethe would be the logical person to point to for that, really it's a much more gradual process than the others, if only because we in our current situation don't necessarily appreciate the very fine details between modernism and postmodernism, as well as we do between ancient and medieval, medieval and modern philosophy. Postmodernism is tough to wrap one's brain about, and it is brought about 
largely through the attitudes that we have, in fact, studied in the 19th century. The 19th century is largely considered to be the place where postmodernism really picks up speed. Um, but it very much doesn't get cemented or doesn't become really the sort of dominant perspective until the 20th. Um, postmodernism, roughly defined, is a reaction to modernism where modernism was our conviction in science, our faith in reason, culminating in that Enlightenment-era philosophy that gave us such luminaries as, you know, the founding fathers of the American Constitution and the guys who all beheaded each other in the French Revolution. Um, so, obviously, modernism has a bit of a dual legacy in that sense. It is both famous and infamous, um, nominous and ignominious. Um, Postmodernism then is responding to modernism and rejecting modernism, where the moderns were convinced that there was this objective rationality and universal truth that united all human beings. Postmodernism rejects that outright. The fundamental tenet underlying postmodernism, if such a thing can be said to exist, is that there is no capital O, capital T, objective truth. That there is no attitude that unites all human beings, that defines all rationality. We cannot boil down the entire human experience to one systematic account, in short. Postmodernism argues instead that the sum of human truth is going to be just that, a sum. Um, something that is the product of all human experience sort of compared and contrasted with one another, not presented as some cogent, unified theory of everything, but rather as a sort of piecemeal confederation of theories. Different attitudes sort of bounce up against one another. Um, why? Why adopt this particular perspective? Well, in the 19th century, a lot of it has to do with the fact that modernism failed. Again, we had all of that violence, all of those revolutions. Clearly, rationality wasn't working for us. Um, and so you have thinkers like Schopenhauer rejecting all of that eternal truth that the ancients and the medievals were talking about. Or you have Nietzsche, who is repeatedly questioning without presenting a theory or a, or a structure behind his arguments. You have guys like Freud, who are rejecting the existence of you know, rationality in human beings altogether and arguing that we are fundamentally, at the end of the day, just sexual animals like any other kind of animals, functioning on instinct and sort of enthralled to our various uh, instincts and, and inner desires. Um, but as much as that's a major part of the development of postmodernism, it really doesn't get solidified until the early 20th century when everything really does go to shit. Um, you cannot talk about postmodernism, at least you can't talk about it in my mind, without also talking about World War I. Um, World War I was, to some degree, the product of modern thought. It involved massive scientific advancements. It involved the greatest minds of the age, like strategizing and trying to build plans to sort of outmaneuver all of the other nations. It involved a great deal of faith in nationalism and sort of the gradual tendency that it had given nationality the, the primacy of place amongst power structures in the centuries beforehand as the Christian church was sort of degenerating. And World War I killed millions of people in a absolutely senseless massacre. 
Um, no ground was gained, no land changed hands, no great accomplishments occurred, no great acts of heroism are remembered from World War One. What is remembered is a giant slog of a war that basically chewed up young men like meat in a grinder, um, that used the finest scientific technology that we had to offer to mow people down by the hundreds and thousands. Machine guns, mustard gas, and trench warfare are the legacy of World War One, and it is not a pleasant legacy. Um, what's more, you know, as much as World War One was a miserable awful conflict that just caused harm and sadness and misery to everyone who was involved in it, World War II, if anything, just drove home the fact that ideologies were dangerous. It was the fascism of Mussolini and the Nazism of Hitler, the wild racism left unchecked that brought literally millions of Jews to concentration camps to be turned into ash. Um, at the end of World War II, we took a long, hard look at ourselves, the human race, and said we can't let that happen again. Especially because at that point we had invented nuclear weapons, and if a world war had ever gotten that serious again, we would conceivably wipe out all chance of human life on this planet. We were now powerful enough to do this. And that meant we had to be responsible in a way that we simply hadn't had to be before. Modern morality had to evolve. It had to change. Nineteenth um, century mor morality wasn't going to cut it anymore. This whole, you know, wars of nations could not be allowed anymore. Not on this magnitude, for sure. Um, to this day, we are still terrified that the kind of little wars that take place between nations in the Middle East or in Asia or wherever, you know, there, there are tyrants and dictators and threats to world security, we have to sit and pray that it never breaks out amongst the nations that are equipped with nuclear weapons, that they will not stoop to destruction of that magnitude, and that war must be handled in a way that is, to some degree, civilized, to some degree with the gloves still on. Um, the world has changed a lot in the 20th century. And what I want to stress is that all of this, you know, de-emphasis on science, this distrust of national governments, this this lack of faith in religion on the one hand and in systematic philosophies on the other, this is what gives way to postmodernism. Um, and I'm not terribly interested in talking about postmodernism as a big picture phenomenon. Like, I'm not going to try and describe the phenomenon of postmodernism. I'm not going to get up on my soapbox and talk about why it's good or why it's bad. Not this time. Most classes I do end up doing that at some point or another. This time, not so much. Um, Postmodernism, for our purposes and in this class, means that going from the 18th century and 17th century's unified vision of progress and development and love as this culmination of, of human experience is ultimately going to be lost in favor of a more kaleidoscopic view of love. Um, in fact, what I've been arguing up until this point, that you know, you should look at all of the different views of love that we've discussed up until this point, and rather than choosing one of them and like strictly abiding by it, that's a very postmodern argument, to be perfectly honest. Um, as much as I am often suspicious and skeptical 
of postmodernism, I have definitely aligned myself when it comes to talking about love, because I really do agree on this front, that the moderns can't solve this one for us. Love is not rational enough for us to trust it to the idea of objective truth. The best we can do is just see what a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives have to say about it, and then hopefully find a way to navigate amongst these perspectives without getting too deep into the uncertainty that accompanies such behavior. Um, now, this might all be kind of strange to say, to preface our discussion of C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton with a fairly happy encomium to postmodernism. Um, the fact of the matter is, neither of these men would consider themselves postmoderns. Both of them are very indebted to the ancients and to the medievals. Um, Christian apologetics in the 20th century largely is indebted to older traditions. Um, these are conservatives in a world that has that has become so progressive as to be alienating to many conservatives of this bent. It is a world that has grown hostile to Christianity, and as a consequence, Christians have gone from, you know, preaching the truth as though everybody was on the same page as them, as we saw with Aquinas and Augustine and, you know, even some of our modern writers like Spinoza, to now they are forced to sort of defend traditional values, argue that maybe the Christians didn't have things as broken as Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and Freud seem to think. Um, so we are going to take a look at what Christianity in the 20th century has to say for itself. Um, and if you are sitting there thinking, but Professor Kozlowski, G.K. Chesterton is not a philosopher and C.S. Lewis is not a philosopher, well, no, no they are not. Um, when I was ultimately constructing this class, when I was writing my syllabus, I was definitely reading through all of the readings in our various textbooks, and I was cobbling together all the ideas that I had from my own readings outside of what the, the classes you know, history would, would ultimately prescribe. I talked to my philosopher friends, and I perused some books that I hadn't looked through in a while, and I opened some new ones that I knew would be relevant to the discussion. Um, I cracked open my copy of Kierkegaard's Works of Love, and I looked over Foucault's History of Sexuality series, and I, you know, ran through my Chinese philosophy books again. Like, there was a lot that I went into, but as I was writing this syllabus, I basically had to admit to myself, especially as I had gone on reading article after article, essay after essay, paper after paper, dialogue after dialogue, that none of them spoke to me as profoundly or significantly as did G.K. Chesterton. Um, to put it really bluntly, I have not encountered a philosophy of love more compelling to me personally than Chesterton's account in Man Alive of how the, you know, main character expresses his love for his wife. Um, that's, to me, the truth of love. And as much as I didn't really have a proof text on friendship of a comparable significance, the minute I started reading uh, C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves as preparation for this class, I felt obligated to include his discussion of friendship as well. Like, honestly, it was 
quite an effort of my part not to include the whole damn book and just have us read all of what he has to say about affection and eros and friendship and all and charity, the other kinds of love that he's talking about. I think he's got a really good sense about it, and I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it makes a lot more sense than most of the philosophers we've encountered, despite the fact that, ostensibly, neither Chesterton nor Lewis are philosophers. So on the one hand, I am definitely including this stuff because I am straight-up biased. Um, and you can absolutely make that argument to me. Like, you can say, oh, you're just including Chesterton and Lewis because you are a Christian, and because you, because you are a Christian, you therefore only care about what Christians have to say. Um, to some degree, that argument is probably valid. Yes, I am a Christian, my Christianity informs my outlook, and, you know, if that is the case, you better believe that I'm going to listen to Christians more than I would, you know, atheists or pagans or otherwise. But at the same time, that ignores a really important component of just who I am. Like, I am not a Christian because I grew up in the faith. Like, I very much fell away from the faith very early on in my life. Like, yes, when I was a kid, we went to church fairly regularly. But because of circumstances outside of mine and my family's control, we very much did not go to church. I did not have the whole 90s youth group experience, which... I'm honestly kind of glad about it. Sounds really stressful, honestly, and not terribly helpful in many cases. And I came back to the faith in the 2000s when I was at college. And I didn't come back to it because I felt obligated to, or because I felt guilty about it, or because I, you know, was trying to recapture some nostalgic purpose that I had lost from my childhood. I came back to it because I thought it made more sense than anything else I had encountered. And I say this as a philosophy student. Like, I say this as having alternatives at my disposal. Um, I came back to the faith because I read C.S. Lewis's Paralandra and concluded that pantheism and Christianity were incompatible. I was going to have to choose one or the other. And the fact of the matter was, Christianity gave me a more compelling outlook on the nature of good and evil than virtually any other philosophy or religion or perspective that I had up until that point encountered. And it remains that way. I do not, you know, there's tons of Christian nonsense out there. Uh, like, all of those 90s and early 2000s movies and books that were published specifically by Christians to Christians. The whole world of, like, Christian praise music that has, like, one chord that just gets banged on over and over and over again. I also am frustrated by this stuff. I hate a lot of what Christendom has produced over the last 50 years. And that's not even getting into the whole political dimension where Christians have apparently lost their minds over the last five years and become basically toadies to the Republican Party. Like, I can get really upset at the various directions that Christianity takes. What I am saying instead is that Christianity at its best seems to me to be extremely rational, and Christian artists, when they are on their A-games, like I'm not talking about, you know, Chris Tomlin, I'm talking about Fyodor Dostoevsky, I'm talking about Dante, I'm talking about, like, Augustine, or Charles Dickens, or, you know, thinkers who really seriously evaluated their Christianity and were able to manage it in prose, in fiction, in philosophy, those people speak to me deeply. Um, and among these great thinkers, in my mind, are G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. 
Um, you could very easily add J.R.R. Tolkien to that list, except that J.R.R. Tolkien didn't happen to write on love or friendship explicitly. Like, you can read The Lord of the Rings and see what he has to think about it, and it is terribly profound and stuff that has moved people for generations since Tolkien wrote. Um, I would definitely point to that as wonderful examples of how friendship is supposed to work, how love is supposed to work. But he didn't write it explicitly, so we ignore him in this case. But the fact of the matter is, after all of the things I've read, after all of the things that I've heard, after all of the disciplines I've studied and philosophies I've encountered, after everything that I have read and prepared for this class, at the end of the day, I feel like this is the most important, best stuff on the subject of love and friendship that I have to offer, and I don't really give a shit at this point. Like, it's my class. I get to teach it however I want it. And I would honestly feel irresponsible if I came to class and presented to you Freud and Schopenhauer and Sartre and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and Spinoza and Montaigne and all of these other philosophers who are supposedly really important that the canon has acknowledged these are the voices on the subject of love and friendship and then neglected to share with you the stuff that really means something to me personally. Like, I say this as a Christian, and yes, it is biased, but I also say it as a person. Like, I would feel like a hypocrite if I taught you about all of these things that I don't consider terribly meaningful or important and then hid from you the stuff that I use, the stuff that I think about, the reference points that I take upon myself. Um, the fact of the matter is, when I first read G.K. Chesterton's Man Alive, it changed my life. Like, legitimately. I was on a plane going to Africa, and I read this book, and I was like, damn it, that is smart. Like, that is how I want my life to look. I want my relationship with my wife to look like that. And I have kept that in mind. My relationship with my wife, as much as I am not, like, beating her in strange bars and proposing to her, looks like this. It is an effort. It is an attempt to renew it every single day. And when my students come to me and say, Professor, I hope that you will restore my faith and love, I have no greater weapon, no greater tool to accomplish that feat than to show you Chesterton and to show you Lewis. Um, so, if you are frustrated by this, that's okay. I'm cool with that. Like, feel free to just turn off this podcast as you are going. Turn off the lecture. Like, you can successfully pass the final exam if you don't know anything about either Lewis or Chesterton. Um, if Christianity is not your thing and you are allergic to what they have to say, then I very well am not going to convince you otherwise. What I will say, though, is you're going to miss out. Um, you're going to miss out on some real wisdom here, and some wisdom presented simply and humbly and not in any way with the level of pretension or, you know, self-accommodation or grandeur that we saw from the 19th century. Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and Freud make me mad. Chesterton and Lewis is the antidote. It makes me happy. It makes me feel like they are actually looking at life and getting a sense of what's going on around them and are able to articulate it in a way that is both intelligent, measured, and insightful. Um, this is, at least to me, truth. Or truth as best as we can have it. 
And I say that knowing full well that we read the Bible in this class, and I did not say the same thing about it. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount is awesome. It is also a huge part of what makes me who I am. Um, but it has a completely different agenda and a completely different source. It has capital A authority in a way that Lewis and Chesterton do not. And Lewis and Chesterton, as a consequence, are observing a phenomenon that I also observe. They see things in a way remarkably close to the way that I saw things. And upon reading these texts, I sat there saying, yes, that is how I see it as well. Um, so let's look at these texts. And it may not even take us that long. Again, they're really straightforward. It's part of what I admire about them, honestly. You don't need an elaborate system to describe love and or friendship. You just need to be honest about it. And they are. Um, they don't have an axe to grind. They don't have a philosophy to promote. They don't have a philosophy to undermine, for that matter. But, as I said, they are both conservatives, in a sense. Both Chesterton and Lewis are very smart people. They are very erudite people. They are very articulate people. They can think well, and they can write well. And they were both very familiar with the history of philosophy, and especially the history of ancient and medieval philosophy. And I want to stress this, because in the 20th century, as I've stressed elsewhere when we were talking about medieval philosophy, people have gotten away from medieval philosophy. It is the one least in sync with 20th and 21st century values. And as a consequence, it is really easy to go through your entire philosophical career and never read any medieval philosophy, or just get, you know, a week and a half like we did. It's easy to overlook that stuff because it doesn't seem important to our sensibilities. It doesn't seem important canonically, like we've... You know, we don't see how you get from Aquinas to, like, Spinoza or Nietzsche. Um, it doesn't seem important historically, because, again, the Renaissance largely threw out re or medieval philosophy upon adopting the ancients again. It doesn't fit our story that the, uh, the medievals weren't an example of progress to us. They were trapped in their Christian religious mindset and therefore weren't terribly valuable to all of our enlightened, scientific, naturalistic attitudes today. But... What I have found is that among 20th and 21st century scholars, there are a knot of hardcore scholars, um, students and literature students and professors who especially study this kind of thing, who very much identify with and very much love ancient and medieval philosophy, ancient and medieval literature. Um, and I frequently encounter them called medievalists. Uh, like some of the greatest scholars that I've had contact with, the greatest professors that I've talked to, some of the most popular professors who I've enjoyed their classes the most were medievalists. Um, and that includes guys like John Gardner, who was a fiction writer, who was also a student of Beowulf and, and Chaucer, to Professor Olson at my undergraduate institution, who was a scholar of Arthurian literature and of Tolkien, um, to Dr. Peter Crave at Boston College, who taught me all about Aquinas, um, and who also was a C.S. Lewis scholar and would have is, would absolutely approve of me teaching Chesterton and Lewis in this situation. I respect these men. I have profound respect for these scholars. Um, and as a consequence, I respect their legacy as well. And I want to carry that legacy forward. Um, 
I want to stress that in the 20th and 21st century, as unpopular as it was in mainstream academia, amongst mainstream philosophers, as much as you may very well be warranted, and there will be many other professors who will agree with you that C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton are not philosophers and should not be studied in a formal academic context, I want to stress that there is a minority, and a fairly strong-willed and vocal minority, that argue the opposite, that stress that J.R.R. Tolkien is one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, easily as great as James Joyce or Virginia Woolf, a minority that very much has not forgotten the lessons that Sir Thomas Mallory or Chrétien de Troyes were teaching in their various Arthurian romances, a vocal minority that considers the Pilgrim's Progress to be on the same level as great modern works of literature like Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice or, you know, something like Gravity's Rainbow in the 20th century. I think that's a perspective that needs a little bit of elevation. Um, you need to know that they exist. And so, again, we come back to G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. To give you a little bit of background, um, we'll start with G.K. Chesterton because we've always kind of started with love in this class and then moved to friendship, um, and it just works chronologically for us as well. Chesterton was a product of the 1900s and 1910s. Um, Man Alive was itself published in 1912, so we were talking about right before World War I is about to blow up everything, um, and as a consequence, he is living at the beginning of postmodernism, and he is one of the most fun and most lively and optimistic opponents of early postmodernism. Um, G.K. Chesterton was engaged in a long-standing literary feud with George Bernard Shaw, and I'm not even sure if I can count it as a feud, because I'm honestly not sure that Shaw knew that Chesterton was taking pot shots at him every single time that Chesterton got the chance. Um, Shaw, by the way, was an ardent Nietzschean social Darwinist and eugenics supporter. Um, again, Man and Superman, I can't deal with it. Like, Shaw has a lot of other fun stuff that isn't horrible, but at the same time, he was very much into that and was publishing frequently at the time. And Chesterton never let Shaw publish anything without like getting on his case about eugenics and stuff. It's one of the many reasons why I just admire Chesterton. He is just having so much fun being an asshole. Um, but anyway, Chesterton was an ardent Catholic, which I need to stress is weird in, in like dominant Anglican uh, England in 1912 of all times. Um, Chesterton wrote prolifically, like, he's got essays out the yin-yang, he's got tons of books that he's written, um, he wrote an entire series of mystery detective stories, like in the line of Sherlock Holmes, featuring a Catholic priest called Father Brown, who just, like, quietly and humbly goes around and, like, investigates murders. It's wonderful. Like, there's even a, a, an adaptation on British TV, which, from what I understand, is just wonderfully delightful in the tradition of, like, murder she wrote and silly, you know television for old people kind of ways. Um, but I also want to stress that Chesterton had an incredible optimism about him. Like, something that you just don't ever see anymore. Like, he couldn't write three lines without one of them being a joke. Um, and it's visible. Like, when you read Man Alive, that energy just pervades every every part of this text. He's always making things out to be silly or or, or just like 
silly is the right word. Like, so it's small and comical and meaningless in some sense. He's playing a game here, and yet he is deadly serious at the same time. Uh, one of my other favorite works of his, The Man Who Was Thursday, which is probably the one that most people know, if anyone knows any Chesterton, is basically about living in, like, early 20th century Europe and being terrified of this sort of art, art anarchist and, and populist movements that are, that are kind of sweeping through Europe. Um, but Chesterton very much writes this story about anarchist plots that are meaningless. It's just a whole bunch of dudes getting together talking about anarchy, but they're all secretly policemen. Like, it's just a coterie of, um, like, servants of the law who are pretending to be anarchists in order to infiltrate an anarchist society that doesn't exist. Like, this is the kind of absurdity and the kind of silliness that Chesterton engages in. And while, on the other hand, you have guys like Sartre or uh, Camus, the existentialists like Heidegger, um, or some of the thinkers that we'll be reading in the next few weeks, very much emphasizing the, the sort of gravity of that absurdity, that life is absurd and we need to, like, stare it directly into the, into the face and, you know, carve out, forge our meaning out of that absurdity. Chesterton is willing to just let the absurd be the absurd. He's in love with the craziness of life, of its unpredictability. Um, so let's look at how that manifests here. Um, so again, I probably didn't do a great job of like cobbling together this particular like set of excerpts. I did the best I could. Um, there were two chapters that I definitely wanted to talk about, and the one I cut quite a bit out of, um, but hopefully have managed to preserve the, the essential sort of, uh, the essential theming and the essential sort of narrative here. Um, but to give you the idea, the, the general gist of what's going on in this story, Innocent Smith is on trial. He is this big, bouncy sort of dude who just sort of, like, rocks all of these people's lives by just bullying into them and, you know, scattering them all over the place and saying all of these ridiculous things to them. And then at one point he actually tries to, like, shoot at someone, apparently, and then everybody gets mad and they put him on trial. Um, the back half of the book is devoted to the trial, and he is accused of various crimes. Um, so in the second chapter we get his, the accusation that he is a thief, but we have discovered through the investigation that he was, in fact, burglarizing his own house and therefore didn't have any actual crime, uh, like he was just stealing his own stuff. Why was he stealing his own stuff? Excellent question. Um, because he wanted it to mean something to him. He wanted to have to fight for it. Um, likewise, in the first chapter, he is accused of murder because he shot at somebody, but it turns out that he's got excellent aim, and he was very deliberately shooting to scare and not to actually hit or harm. And this apparently is also something that he's keen to do. Like, if you if you have ever seen any of the Saw movies, and it's like, I'm going to put you in this death trap, and as a consequence, you're going to value your life more. Imagine the G-rated version of this, and that's basically what it comes down to. Like, he is shooting wildly around people in order to make them suddenly value their lives and the meaning of their lives more. Um, and the, the sort of villain here, uh, you can see in, in the, the uh, character of... of um, 
Dr. Pym, who is sort of frequently arguing that, like, there's something wrong with this person and they're sick in the head or something. Um, and while, and against Moon and, and Innocent Smith, who are generally benevolent, heroic figures as far as the story presents them. Uh, but we move on to chapter three and we start talking about Innocent Smith's relationship to his wife. Um, and this is what I want to focus on. This is what really moved me when I read it for the first time, like sitting on that plane, reading this sucker cover to cover um, in practically one or two sittings. This is what kept me going. Uh, this is the climax as, as I experienced it. Like Chesterton is having just a ball writing this, um, but he is at his most insightful and philosophical here in, in chapters three and four. Um, so the first charge that is leveled, at least for our purposes, is that he has deserted his wife. Um, and we notice that Innocent Smith has come and started uh, being around these people, um, and his wife is nowhere to be seen, although it is known that he is married, and he is apparently making eyes at one of the women in the area, who admittedly nobody knows anything about, um, and they're all worried that he is cheating on his wife. He is he is being accused of adultery in the next chapter, uh, but he is accused first of having left his wife in the first place. Um, and what comes out is this rather absurd story that we get here. Um, so if we jump into the text, this first quote paragraph, when, when Pym is actually like making the accusation, um, the last charge against the accused was one of burglary. The next charge on the paper is of bigamy and desertion. It does without question appear that the defense, in aspiring to rebut this last charge, have really admitted the next. Either Innocent Smith is still under a charge of attempted burglary, or else that is exploded, but he is pretty well fixed for attempted bigamy. It all depends on what view we take of the alleged letter from Curate Percy. Under these conditions, I feel justified in claiming my right to questions. May I ask how the defense got hold of the letter from Curate Percy? Did it come direct from the prisoner? And Moon replies, we have gotten nothing directly from the prisoner. So Pym asks, well, where did you get it from? And Moon responds, we got them from Miss Gray, the mysterious woman who Innocent Smith has been apparently hitting on. Apparently, she's got all these letters for some reason, and we don't know why. Um, so instead, we just don't bother to explain explore it here. Again, we'll get to that in the next chapter. Um, you'll notice that Pym is like, do you really mean to say that Miss Gray was in possession of this document testifying to a previous Mrs. Smith? And everyone just kind of goes about it. Um, notice what the actual story here is. So let's look at Mr. Gould's testimony on the second page of the excerpt. Mr. Gould, with his tireless cheerfulness, arose to present the gardener. That functionary explained that he had served Mr. and Mrs. Innocent Smith when they had a little house on the edge of Croydon. From the gardener's tale, with its many small illusions, Inglewood grew certain he had seen the place. It was one of those corners of town or country that one does not forget, for it looked like a frontier. The garden hung very high above the lane, and its end was steep and sharp, like a fortress. Beyond was a roll of real country, with a white path sprawling across it, and the roots, boles, and branches of great gray trees writhing and twisting against the sky. But as if to assert that the lane itself was suburban, were sharply relieved against that gray and tossing upland a lamppost painted a peculiar yellow-green and a red pillar box that stood exactly at the corner. Inglewood was sure of the place. He had passed it twenty times in his constitutionals on the bicycle. He had always dimly felt it was a place where something might occur. But it gave him quite a shiver to feel that the face of his frightful friend or enemy Smith might at any time have appeared over the garden bushes above. 
The gardener's account, unlike the curate's, was quite free from decorative adjectives, however many he may have uttered privately when writing it. He simply said that on a particular morning, Mr. Smith came out and began to play about with a rake, as he often did. Sometimes he would tickle the nose of his eldest Ella's child, he had two children. Sometimes he would hook the rake onto the branch of a tree and hoist himself up with horrible gymnastic jerks like those of a giant frog in its final agony. Never apparently did he think of putting the rake to any of its proper uses, and the gardener, in consequence, treated his actions with coldness and brevity. But the gardener was certain that on one particular morning in October, he, the gardener, had come round the corner of the house carrying the hose, had seen Mr. Smith standing on the lawn in a striped red and white jacket, which might have been his smoking jacket, but was quite as like a part of his pajamas, and had heard him then and there call out to his wife, who was looking out of the bedroom window onto the garden, these decisive and very loud expressions. I won't stay here any longer. I've got another wife and much better children a long way from here. My other wife's got redder hair than yours, and my other garden's got a much finer situation, and I'm going off to them. With these words, apparently, he sent the rake flying far up into the sky, higher than many could have shot an arrow, and caught it again. Then he cleared the hedge at a leap and alighted on his feet down in the lane below, and set off up the road without even a hat. Notice the details here. We get this very vivid picture of Innocent Smith's house, his whole living situation, this little sort of country home on the edge of this large, sprawling, wilderness, moory area. It's very British. Um, and importantly, there's that lighthouse, or the, the not lighthouse, lamppost, the green and yellow lamppost with the red mailbox sitting on the corner. Like, here is this one oasis in the center of this big, wild space. And here we have Innocent Smith, this big giant dude who apparently is like frivolously playing around with a rake like the notice the detail of him like pulling himself up on a tree branch with the rake and squirming about like a frog like notice the details there the silliness of this character like even the the speech that he presents the idea that he's got another wife and better children a long way off and my wife's hair is redder than yours like all of the details emphasize the sort of silliness of the situation. It doesn't make sense. It's not realistic in some sense. You know, Chesterton was a huge fan of fairy tales, of children's stories, um, and he liked to adopt that style in writing his own stories as well. He was very childlike in his own way and admired childlike behavior in his own way, which is a whole other conversation that we're not going to have here. Um, he was, you'll notice, innocent, as his name suggests. And I have to imagine that Chesterton was writing himself into this story as Innocent Smith. Chesterton himself was this big, fat dude with, you know, just a ridiculous appearance who liked to wear little spectacles and a silly hat and just had an absolutely absurd taste in fashion and was very fond of homely things, the way that Innocent Smith is. He is very much writing this autobiographically, I suspect. But notice what he does. So he leaves his wife. I have another wife far away from here who's better than you, and I have other children who are way far away, who are better than you, than these, and she's got redder hair than yours, and I'm going to go to see her. I'm sick and tired of living in this place with these people, and I'm going to go to a place where I have better people. And he does. And notice, the next time that we see him, the next evidence that we get is he's made it to France. Um, so on the third page of our excerpt, we have, this impression was somewhat curiously clinched by Michael Moon, the few but clear 
few but clear phrases in which he opened the defense upon the third charge. So far from denying that Smith had fled from Croydon and disappeared on the continent, he seemed prepared to prove all this on his own account. I hope you are not so insular, he said, that you will not respect the word of a French innkeeper as much as that of an English gardener. By Mr. Inglewood's favor, we will hear the French innkeeper. And indeed, we get the account, which is written in French. Sir, yes, I am Durabin, of Durabin's Café on the Seafront at Grass, rather north of Dun Dunkirk. I am willing to write all I know of the stranger out of the sea. I have no sympathy with eccentrics or poets. A man of sense looks for beauty in things deliberately intended to be beautiful, such as a trim flower bed or an ivory statuette. One does not permit beauty to pervade one's whole life, just as one does not pave all the roads with ivory or cover all the fields with geraniums. My faith, but we should miss the onions! But whether I read things backwards through my memory, or whether there are indeed atmospheres of psychology which the eye of science cannot as yet pierce, it is the humiliating fact that on that particular evening I felt like a poet. Like any little rascal of a poet who drinks absinthe in the mad Montmartre. Positively, the sea itself looked like absinthe, green and bitter and poisonous. I had never known it look so unfamiliar before. And the sky was that early and stormy darkness that is so depressing to the mind, and the wind blew shrilly round the little lonely-colored kiosk where they sell the newspapers, and along the sand hills by the shore. There I saw a fishing boat with a brown sail standing in silently from the sea. It was already quite close, and out of it clambered a man of monstrous stature, who came wading to shore with the water not up to his knees, though it would have reached the hips of many men. He leaned on a long raker pole which looked like a trident and made him look like a triton. Wet as he was, and with strips of seaweed clinging to him, he walked across to my cafe and, sitting down at a table outside, asked for cherry brandy, a liquor which I keep, but is seldom demanded. Then the monster, with great politeness, invited me to partake of a vermouth before my dinner, and we fell into conversation. He had apparently crossed from Kent by a small boat, got in a private bargain because of some odd fancy he had for passing promptly in an easterly direction, and not waiting for any of the official boats. He was, he somewhat vaguely explained, looking for a house. When I naturally asked him where the house was, he answered that he did not know. It was on an island. It was somewhere to the east, or, as he expressed it with a hazy and yet impatient gesture, over there. I asked him how, if he did not know the place, he would know when he know it when he saw it. Here he suddenly ceased to be hazy and became alarmingly minute. He gave a description of the house detailed enough for an auctioneer. I've forgotten nearly all the details except the last two, which were that the lamppost was painted green and that there was a red pillar box at the corner. A red pillar box? I cried in astonishment. Why, the place must be in England. I had forgotten, he said, nodding heavily. That is the island's name. But, nom du nom, I cried testily, you've just come from England, my boy. They said it was England, said my imbecile, conspiratorially. They said it was Kent, but Kentish men are such liars, one can't believe anything they say. Notice what's happening here. Notice the details. First off, here we have Durabin, this innkeeper in France, and he is looking out at the sea, and he is caught up with a rare poetic inclination. He's typically a prosy sort of guy. He doesn't go in for all this beauty and unexpected places nonsense. No, he wants his beauty in his beautiful places, and he wants his mundane things in his mundane places. He doesn't want to pave the fields with geraniums. Uh, but he finds himself in a particularly whimsical mood, and he's describing the sea, and notice we get another poetic description, just like we did of Innocent Smith's original home. The sea looked like absinthe, and the lonely colored kiosk where they sell the newspapers, and the fishing boat, and the man of monstrous stature. He's getting poetic. He can't help himself. There's something romantic carrying him away in some sense. 
and he in trudges Innocent Smith. And we have this conversation where he asks about where this house is, somewhere to the east. And the guy's like, you just described it to me, and it sounds like England. And the guy's like, it wasn't England, I can tell you. Kentish men are liars. It didn't seem like England to me. This is the pattern that is going to follow for the rest of the chapter. And admittedly, I skip quite a few of the episodes. Um, but we do get another meeting in Russia, another meeting in the Far East, a meeting in California, and finally we get this last document where he finally arrives home. That is to say that I am Ruth Davis and have been housemate to Mrs. I. Smith at the Laurels in Croydon for the last six months. When I came, the lady was alone with two children. She was not a widow, but her husband was away. She was left with plenty of money, and she did not seem disturbed about him, though she often hoped he would be back soon. She said he was rather eccentric, and a little change did him good. One evening last week, I was bringing the tea things out to the lawn when I nearly dropped them. The end of a long rake was suddenly stuck over the hedge and planted like a jumping pole, and over the hedge, just like a monkey on a stick, came a huge, horrible man, all hairy and ragged like Robinson Crusoe. I screamed out, but my mistress didn't even get out of her chair, but smiled and said he wanted shaving. Then he sat down quite calmly at the garden table and took a cup of tea, and then I realized that this must be Mr. Smith himself. He has stopped here ever since, and does not really give much trouble, though I sometimes fancy he is a little weak in his head, Ruth Davis. P.S. I forgot to say that he looked round at the garden and said, very loud and strong, Oh, what a lovely place you've got, just as if he'd never seen it before. This, to me, is profound wisdom. And I realize that it doesn't look like it. Like, Chesterton himself would say, no, this does not sound like profound wisdom, nor do I present it as profound wisdom. But nonetheless, profound wisdom. Here is a man who has literally gone all the way around the world, started from his home in England, crossed to the continent, and started heading east until he had crossed the entire world, at which point he comes back to his exact same house and rests. Notice what he says when he embarks, that He's off to see his other wife, who's got hair redder than hers, her, his children who are better than these, his house which is better than this one. Notice how every step along the way, and admittedly we don't get many details, but he mentions it to the Frenchman especially, that there is one good thing that science ever discovered, that the world is round. And importantly, he needs to go round the world to appreciate where he is. Remember all we said about Freud and how the, the libido needs obstacles set in its path? Look at what Chesterton is doing with this idea. In essence, he agrees with Freud. An obstacle needs to be put in his path in order for the libido to achieve its pleasure, its self-realization. But rather than manufacture obstacles from society, he manufactures them for himself. He trains himself. He goes away from home so he can find it again, and when he comes back to it, the grass is greener, and the hair of his wife is redder, and his children are better behaved. Admittedly, his wife seems to be on board with this. She seems really chill here. Like, she doesn't even get up when he climbs over the fence, this huge hairy dude. Like, she's on board with this because this is what it takes for him to be happy. 
We as human beings are obsessed with novelty, and everyone has acknowledged this in our philosophy. Everyone has stressed, like all Nietzsche has stressed it perhaps most explicitly, but everyone has talked about how love is a passion, how it comes and how it goes, how it fades after a while. How you get Aristotle talking about, you know, these friendships of pleasure, they degenerate after a little while, and eventually it just fades away. And that's okay. That's the way that friendships work. Nietzsche likewise is saying, you know, love is a passion. It is absurd to expect it to endure, and yet it gives us something higher when we commit to it anyway. Here is the highest realization. Here is a person who knows that love is a passion, who knows that it is on the wane, who personally experiences it disappearing from his life, and rather than give up on it, he goes around the world to make it come back. Just like those courtly lovers who stress that, like, distance makes the heart go fronder, Innocent Smith knows this, and so he makes use of it. He's got the tools at his disposal. He doesn't need a new wife. He needs to make his current wife new. And there's all the difference in that. So look to at chapter 4, the wild weddings or the polygamy charge, which I do include in its entirety here, in large part because it's considerably faster and considerably less racist. I'm sorry, Chesterton was a product of the early 20th century. He's not perfect, and as much as he does get really excited and is really friendly to other races, he is not sensitive or, you know, culturally appropriate in any extent of the imagination. Um, yeah, so when he's visiting, like, the guy in the Far East, it's, it's bad. It's just bad. So we're not including it here. Instead, we're going to include Chapter 4, which is way nicer and doesn't have nearly as much racism and is equally important and, I think, if anything, more indicative of what's in fact going on here. Um, if the first charge was that he deserted his wife, that he just left her, like, out of the blue. The obvious refutation to this charge is, yeah, but he came back. He never left her for good. He left her to find her. He left the place that had grown stale in order to make it fresh again. He left the place that he had learned to take for granted in order to make it novel again. He left because only by leaving can you stay, in a sense. And he even says this at a couple of points in the text. But here, for the polygamy charge, we get a different sort of relationship. Here, rather than, you know, he's, like, once again, we get the same structure, but he's accused of sleeping with lots and lots of different women, that he has multiple marriages, and he's apparently been killing them off behind the scenes. Like, Pym suggests this um, at one point, and it's just, you know, kind of absurd. Um, and notice that this is also sort of a tendency of Chesterton in this book, but Pym always accuses him of not being criminal, but of just being mentally ill in classic Freudian fashion. Like, it is that 19th century's focus on, you know, it is the, the nature of his libido that is causing him to do this, which Chesterton finds so frustrating um, and writes about it extensively in other places. Um, but notice Smith here, too, is engaged in a deception. The woman that he is constantly marrying is always the same woman, as they discover. So we get these multiple circumstances, these multiple occasions. He carries off um, this, you know, woman from the high morality of the Anglo-Saxon home. We, he carries off the secretary who is, you know, typing her, her messages admittedly poorly on, on her little typewriter there. Like, I, I love the little line here where we get the the, the error. Um, 
the this is on page seven. On October 12th, a letter was sent from this office to Messrs. Bernard and Juke, bookbinders. Opened by a Mr. Juke, it was found to contain the following. Sir, our Mr. Trip will call at three, as we wish to know whether it is really decided 00000073BB exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, XY. To this, Mr. Juke, a person of a playful mind, returned the answer, Sir, I am in a position to give it my most decided opinion that it is not really decided that 00000073BB exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, XY. Yours, etc. J. Juke. So again, Chesterton is using that silliness there to, to characterize these relationships. But when, in fact, this woman is interrogated about it, it turns out she is playing her keyboard like... She is playing the typewriter keyboard as though it were an actual keyboard, a piano, to sort of keep time with the organ grinder, who then swoops in and sweeps her off her feet and carries her off and marries her. Um, but notice, again, just as we saw with the desertion charge, where he's going all the way around the world just to find his wife again, it is revealed that, in fact, all of the women he has seduced, all of the women he has carried off, all of the women he has married, are always the same woman. Just as he has to refresh himself to make his wife new for him, and that is the solution to his, you know, waning passion, his sort of human, his natural human desire for novelty and newness, just so he has to seduce his wife over and over and over again. And this is different from what we see in, you know, the 19th century philosophers who are arguing about, like, you know, you think of Rousseau talking to Sophie and saying, oh, you have to withhold your sexuality from him in order to keep the, the spark alive. Like, Chesterton is saying something radically different here. He is not saying you have to manipulate each other in order to keep each other interested. No, what he's saying is you have to have an intimacy so deep, so frank, so forthright with each other that you are willing to go through these elaborate charades if necessary, if that's what it takes to stay committed to one another. To me, this is love. Like... I know we've talked about love in so many different contexts at this point, and had so many different potential definitions, and so many different expressions, and I have emphasized through it all, yes, we're going to talk about love the phenomenon, and people are going to try and understand love the phenomenon, and they're going to be all over the place. I was right! Like, Plato's definition of love varies depending on who is speaking in any given moment. When you get to, you know, what is the... what is... Lucretius's definition of love and De Rerum Natura, and he's like, oh, love is just despicable and it destroys people. Like, that is a completely different kind of love than the love of Dante, or the love of the courtly lovers, or the love of, you know, Spinoza and his pantheism, or even Freud with his sort of identification that love is no more than sex. Like, all of these different definitions of love, basically none of them have been compatible with one another. So if we try and describe love as a phenomenon, we're not going to get anywhere. There's too much that it encompasses. But as I said at the beginning of class, I'm not interested in love the phenomenon. I'm not going to describe it the way that poets describe it. I am going to talk about the ethics behind it. How do you love? How do you love better? Because if you are looking for the solution to all of your problems in a loved one, I really don't think that's how it works. 
I say that from my own experience. I say that from having looked at all of the philosophers we've looked at this semester. You know, yes, it's entirely possible that you might have some transcendent love experience as we see with Goethe or Dante, which admittedly, one of those two you don't want to have. In either case, it seems to be an incredibly rare occurrence, and it is very likely romanticized, trumped up, illusory in some sense. I tend to agree with Schopenhauer and with Freud when they talk about love as this illusion that we perpetrate on ourselves in order to justify our sexual behavior, at least in that sense. We talk ourselves into being in love. But importantly, if we can in fact do that, then that means we're in control of it. That means that falling in or out of love isn't something that happens to us, it's something that we do. And if we take command of it, if we are deliberate in the way that we love, if we love deliberately the way that Innocent Smith loves his wife, if we are honest with the person that we love and we express, yes, I want to keep the spark alive, yes, I want a little bit more romance in my life, let's do something crazy, let me pick you up at a bar sometime and we can have forbidden illicit sex even though we are married to each other. Let me, you know, go get a job as a secretary and I will swoop in and carry you off. Like, that to me is the highest expression of romance that is possible. Not the romance with the big gestures or the big fancy weddings or the big one-off events. What I mean is the commitment. And I know the commitment is a dirty word, the way that we talk about it in the 20th century. Like, commitment is anathema to love. And we've had all of these philosophers stressing that, like, commitment is the death of love, and if you make love easy, then it's bad, and if you make love an, an obligation, then it's bad. And you've got Sartre talking about, like, you're trying to subsume the other person and make them do that. Like, yes, I get it. I understand. What I mean by commitment is not signing a piece of paper or a document to say that I'm always going to love you. What I am saying is that every day you recommit. Love is not a feeling. Or if it is a feeling, then that's just one dimension of how we are supposed to behave about it. And it doesn't give us any information about what we are supposed to do with that feeling. Chesterton gives us advice. And Chesterton's advice is keep it alive. Fight for it. Work for it. Love is something wonderful when you've got it, when you have that feeling. Sure. And yes, it does come. It strikes you like a murderer as Bulgakov once put it. It absolutely takes you by surprise and it takes you up and swoops you off your feet in the way that Goethe's virtue was swept off his feet. But if, you're in, if your choices are to either let it be this obsession that destroys you, or if you do in fact find a way to consummate it and now it becomes weak and pathetic and it doesn't strike you as awesome as it was before, whether it's because of the various sexual problems that Freud is describing or because, you know, closeness makes love fade the way that, the, that Andreas Capellanus talked about it. Who cares? Be better than that. As much as we don't usually associate with working hard for the sake of love, we usually think of love as being something effortless that happens to you, a feeling and not an action, I tend to think that the wiser move here is Chesterton's. Chesterton sees that this is something you have to work for. This is something you do deliberately. And honestly, this sounds a lot more fun than 
getting in and out of marriages, getting in and out of divorces, breaking up with people, and being miserable. And I'm not saying that that means that, like, you should just find the first person who you are even remotely compatible with and start dating them and then just work really, really, really hard to make that work. No. Some compatibility is necessary. Some kind of fellow feeling is necessary. Absolutely. Not questioning that at all. There are better people and worse people for you. But at the end of the day, you're not going to find the one. Like, I don't believe in soulmates, and virtually nobody this semester has believed in soulmates. The one exception was Aristophanes, back in Plato's Symposium. Maybe you could assume that Dante is doing it. Maybe you could assume that Goethe is doing it. I don't know. Suffice it to say, none of our traditional philosophers have said it without a caveat. There isn't some kind of match-made-in-heaven, faded relationship to be had here. And if there is, great. Don't, presumably you will find it because fate and so on and so forth. At any rate, what I want to stress is that you make love work. If there are soulmates in this world, they're not going to be gotten easily. You're going to have to fight for them. You're going to have to work for them. And for your relationship with another person to be more than just two people cohabitating or two people who are having sex until they get bored of it, you're both going to have to work towards it. At some level, I would even go so far as to say that anyone could be compatible with anyone else. And in this, if you want my justification, I would point of all places to the freaking Buddhists. Their idea that compassion can be expressed to anyone. The fact that everyone has something admirable about them at some level. And yes, it will be harder work for some than others, like, to be compatible. I'm not denying that. But in the same way that Kierkegaard was stressing that loving one's neighbor is something that can happen to everyone, it is something commanded to, to, for you to do for everyone in your life, so do I think that love in this erotic, attractive, love as potential fodder for marriage sense could also be with virtually anyone. If that wasn't the case, why would arranged marriage have been working for so long? Why is it still an institution, and why do people still say that that has worked for them? Arranged marriage is just an indication that love is work. It's an acknowledgement of that. It accepts that. You go into the relationship not expecting somebody to just magically be perfect for you at all times. It, it is a, non, a known thing that you were going in and you were going to work for. If we went towards our more passionately informed relationships with the same kind of thinking in mind, we'd probably be a lot happier and healthier for it. And there'd probably be a lot less divorces as a consequence. And again, yes, this is my Christianity talking, and yes, this is my subjective opinion, and yes, these are my biases. Again, I would feel remiss if there weren't some opportunity in this class for me to actually say this stuff. If I just had to repeat the words of people who I didn't respect for months on end, I would lose my mind and I would not respect myself. I respect Chesterton. I really think he's, got, he's onto something here. And I do this in my own life to some degree, and it works. It works like hell. Like, I'm not saying that my relationship is perfect, not by any extent of the imagination, but seriously... I make my wife so happy when I do just stupid little things regularly. Like, 
I plug in the little Christmas tree lights that light up our, our apartment before she comes home. Or I have dinner ready for her when she gets home from work. Or I rub her feet from time to time. Or we just go out to the movies from time to time. We make the effort. We make an effort to express to one another that we care about each other, that we love one another, that we are not getting old, and we strive to see the new in one another. We strive to look for what is good in the other person, rather than keeping mental lists of all the ways that they've failed us. That makes all the difference. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as going to a bar and picking your, your wife up one, once a week, or whatever the case may be, or apply it to your own situation. But if love is going to work, it is going to require work. That's basically all I'm saying here, and I think that's really all that Chesterton needs to get across. That's the secret truth, the enormous, elaborate secret behind Professor Kozlowski's ideal of how love is supposed to work. It's really that dumb and that simple. And the crazy thing to me is that it is also really uncommon. Like, the number of times my wife has told me about how, you know, her girlfriends would call her on the phone and they would complain about their husbands, or they would complain about their boyfriends, or they would complain about their partners, and my wife would ask the question, have you talked to them about it? And the answer is always no. No, of course not. I, how could I? Like, it's a really delicate situation right now. Or, you know, I, I don't think he would understand this. Or I don't think that I could tell him that. Like, my wife and I talk. <laughs> like, we talk a lot. Like, to the point that it's probably really abnormal and kind of gross. Like, we talk about all sorts of things. We talk about stupid things, like what did we watch on TV. We talk about, like, silly things, like we make puns to each other and we groan at each other's bad dad jokes. We talk about serious things. We will sit in the middle of the night and just talk to each other about sex or about love or about our faith or about how we think God works or how philosophy works or I'll tell her about what I'm teaching in class or she'll tell me about what she's reading on her breaks or she'll tell me about how her day at work was or I'll tell her about how awful my students were. Like, we just talk. And that's so much of it. Just staggeringly simple and staggeringly powerful. What I find so compelling about Chesterton, what I, he repeatedly reminds me of, is the opposite of what that French dude who was the, the hotel keeper was saying. There is beauty in everything. The dumbest things. The smallest things. There's this great passage where in The the Man Who Was Thursday, Chesterton is describing this guy having a conversation with an anarchist. Um, and the anarchist is like, hmm, we're going to bomb the subway system, and that way the subway will not be able to get to Islington. And the guy's like, why? It's a miracle that the subway consistently comes to Islington. The fact that society, civilization, has gotten to a point that you can consistently expect the subway to arrive at Islington within five minutes, one way or the other, virtually every time it's scheduled to show up, is amazing. And that's Chesterton's whole outlook. The world as it is, is amazing. It's shocking. It will surprise you all the time. Yes, sometimes in unpleasant ways. There are more than our fair share of unpleasant ways that the world is going to surprise us. But there's also just weird stuff about it. Like, 
watch a documentary about an octopus sometime, or, you know, learn something about the way that the basic physics of air currents works, or, you know, read another work of philosophy by somebody who you've never read before, or read anything on any subject, and you will find people passionately interested in the most detailed, minutia, stuff that you didn't even know existed. It's incredible. Like, you could spend your entire life contemplating the meaning of a single tree, just understanding the way that the leaves come in every year, or seeing what sort of living things hang out in the bark or in the knotholes, the squirrels and the birds who live there. Like, an entire ecosystem, and there are dozens of them, just all around us at all times. As much as this may sound trite, as much as it may sound pathetic, as much as it may sound just so basic to human experience, like, seriously, I have often said that Chesterton, reading Chesterton is life-affirming. He knows how to make stupid, mundane things, things that we see and deal with every single day, exciting and new, alien. Tolkien says the same thing about the purpose of fantasy, that the entire reason why you tell fairy stories, why you write fantasy, is to re-engage the imagination, to make familiar things look unfamiliar again. You look at a, wind a shop window and you see it not as just a pane of glass and commercialism and capitalism and money transactions, but instead as the portal to an entire world. You see the life that that represents, the work that that represents. This world is fascinating. There is like zero excuse to be bored with it. Zero. And I know that it's sometimes hard work to see that. I don't want to downplay that. It requires a certain outlook, a certain perspective, and it's something that's hard to keep up. It is easier to just get in the car and drive wherever it is that you're going and not pay any attention to the trees and the houses on the side of the road. Just focus 100% on where you're going, and then you get there, and you do the thing, and you get in your car, and you come back. And that's your day. That's your life. Day after day after day after day. One of the great powers of philosophy, at least in my opinion, is that it shakes that up. It refuses to accept it in that way. Whether it's Heidegger saying that things breaking down is a reminder of your mortality and therefore your humanity, or whether it's Plato sort of saying, you know, how is it that a master general is similar to the gods creating meaning for our lives? Um, the way that the myths of the ancient Greeks or the legends of the medievals sort of inform the way that they understand their own lives, and the way that fiction and fantasy inform our own. That's richness. And philosophy empowers you to look at the world differently. To see the novelty in it. To turn your wife into the woman you're going to seduce, the way that Innocent Smith does whether it is a wife or a husband or any relationship whatsoever. Life is weird, exciting, different, interesting, fascinating. Like, in the sense of to fascinate, to get so caught up in studying a thing that you lose sight of everything else around you. Like, that's what life can be, and frequently is. And love is supposed to be sort of the highest dimension of that, the highest realization of this. Love for Chesterton is work, yes, but it is work that is always rewarding.
It is getting to see another human being almost as well as you get to see yourself. It means studying another person with as much detail as it takes to learn about yourself. And if you aren't fascinating to yourself, I don't know what you're doing, because I am absolutely fascinated by myself all of the time. Like, I'm fascinated by the way that I think about things, I'm fascinated, I'm fascinated by the way I react to things, I'm fascinated by my choices and my instincts and my desires and all of this. Like, it's, it's a 24-7 job being a person. Add another person to the mix, and it's overwhelming how much there is to know, how much there is to learn. Chesterton reignites that, I think. That's what his understanding of love is. It's relighting the candle. It didn't stop being a candle. You just let it go out. That's kind of on you. You know, it happens. Every one of us is inclined to it. The solution, then, is to reignite it. Reread Chesterton. Reread Tolkien. Whatever it is that sort of strikes your fancy. Watch one of your favorite movies again. You know, it's those small things that add up to the big profound insights about reality and stuff. And it is those small things that are, at the end of the day, profound and real. So with that in mind, let's look at Lewis. Let's look at how Lewis also is characterizing something that is very familiar at this point. Like, again, you'll notice Lewis is very much in that tradition of rhetorical moralists um, that Kant was absolutely so bent out of shape about when we were talking about the Enlightenment. Like, Lewis's essay absolutely reads like Cicero's or like Montaigne's. Um, it very much has a lot of those same characteristics. But I want to emphasize that they are, in fact, different. Maybe because Lewis is writing to us. Maybe because Lewis is only 60 years old instead of 600. Um, that's entirely possible. But I think Lewis also has his eyes open in a way that Cicero and Montaigne didn't necessarily. I think Lewis is attentive to his predecessors, like Cicero, like Montaigne, like the various medievals and, and ancient writers that he's clearly riffing off of here. Um, but I also think that he is very much drawing his own experience here. Like, Lewis, Lewis was a part of a remarkably important group of friends. Um, they are what's known as the Inklings. And the Inklings were this celebrated group of Oxford professors and writers and so on who lived in the 50s and 60s. And this includes J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, but it also includes a wide variety of other folks who get much less press because their publish, publications weren't nearly as well received. Um, I actually have several friends who are studying the work of the Inklings. Like, that's what their PhD project is all about. So I am vaguely aware that there are others and that they exist and have different relationships. But notice that this very much informs Lewis's writing, and as a result, it gives it a very different character, a very different flavor. Lewis isn't writing the way that Montaigne or Cicero write about pairs of friends. A friend and their friend. It is not a one-to-one -one friendship. He is talking about friends as a group and how they buttress one another. He, men he mentions that detail about, like, if one of you dies or if one of you goes away, all of you were lessened. You were not just upset at the loss of Ronald, but you were upset at the loss of the what Ronald was in Chester. Um, you 
influence each other, and your influence of one another affects each other in different ways. And again, I see this in my own life as well. Like, I used to have a group of friends who, once upon a time, we played Pathfinder together, and we had something like six or seven of us all together. And one of us did, in fact, die in the past ten years. It was rough. We did not like that. Um, but it also changed the entire dynamic. And what's more, in the, the years since, we have sort of fragmented and broken apart. People have moved away, gotten other jobs. You know, we are able to hang out as a group less and less. And yet I can see a shift in the way that people interact as a consequence. My friend Bobby is interacts with my friend Mike in a different way than Mike is when he just interacts with me alone. Uh, my friend Ryan had an important role to play when all of us were together, but now that we haven't been able to get connect as, as frequently, Ryan and I have kind of fallen apart. Groups of friends have these dynamics. It's complicated in exactly this way. And it's something that none of the other writers we've talked about have actually talked about at this point. The fact that friends come in groups. Um, maybe this is a phenomenon of the 20th century. Maybe this is because, you know, back in the world of the ancients, you really did share your life together. You know, what Lewis is describing here isn't sharing life together in the profound sense that Aristotle or Cicero seem to suggest. What he is suggesting is that they are sharing common interests. This is, for Lewis, the foundation of friendship. Now, I should remark, as I did quite a while ago when we were talking about Aristotle, that this does seem very male-centric. Fortunately, Lewis admits this. Like, he very deliberately says, you know, I, I don't know what it's like when women hang out together. It's a completely different experience. Um, what, the, the line, I am particularly fond of the way he expresses it on page uh, 95 of our PDF. What were the women doing meanwhile? How should I know? I am a man and never spied on the mysteries of the Bonadea. They certainly often had rituals from which men were excluded. When, as sometimes happened, agriculture was in their hands, they must, like the men, have had common skills, toils, and triumphs. Yet perhaps their world was never as emphatically feminine as that of their menfolk was masculine. The children were with them, perhaps the old men were there too, but I am only guessing. I can trace the prehistory of friendship only in the male line. Lewis is almost certainly biased here. Um, and he acknowledges his bias. He understands. I'm a dude. All my friends are dudes. The relationship that I have with my friends is a specifically dude relationship. Therefore, I can only speak to dude friends with dudes. Obviously, things are more complicated now than they were even in Lewis's time, which he's writing in the 1960s, and that was considerably more modern than most of the other texts that we have read thus far. There was much less striation between the sexes than we have today. But you'll notice that Lewis mentions that this is still a phenomenon that he needs to grapple with. I don't think he's being anti-feminist in this sense. He's certainly not hating on women. I think he's describing it fairly experientially. Like, this is what he sees. So that whole discussion about how, you know, like, in certain groups of suburban communities in England, you've got, like, these very erudite and intelligent women who make these friendships, and therefore they're, like, the luminaries of the, of the group, while the men just, like, go to work and they're drudges and they don't have anything to, to sort of talk to each other about. Likewise, there are also situations where the women aren't as educated as the men, and the men are, therefore, all these luminaries getting together, talking about things, getting excited, and yet the women, when they're invited to participate, kind of bring the whole thing down. Like, everybody's trying to, you know, talk down to them, and the, the conversation sort of takes a turn as a consequence. Like, that's 
sounds a little misogynistic, but I really don't think it is in this case. I think Lewis is describing a peculiarity of his time, of the 60s, namely that there was this expectation that men and women were equal, but we hadn't gotten there yet. And the intimacy that was to be achieved among members of the same sex for the purposes of sharing their interests and sharing what they cared about hadn't quite jumped to the other sex yet. Now, nowadays, I doubt that those barriers are in place. Like, I remember when I was in high school, we would have, like, big gaming sessions and all these people would get together and we'd all play magic or we'd all, you know, play the play video games together or something. And there were frequently mixed company. And it was not just that phenomenon where, like, the girl is coming along because their boyfriend is coming along. No, they were as interested as we were. And that made it made sure that it was never a barrier. Yes, as Lewis points out, many of those did in fact have erotic connotations, and frequently when a woman was interested in a predominantly male activity, or a male was interested in a predominantly female activity, relationships and contentions and drama would almost certainly ensue. Like, talk to drama people about this sometime, and you'll get the whole details of how messy such things can become when a bunch of people interested in the same stuff get real intimate real fast with each other. Um, there is certainly drama to be had between and among the sexes now that there is a little bit more accessibility across the board and the lines aren't quite so striated. But it's also not 100% solved either. Like when I was a master's student at Boston College, I frequently had classes where everybody in the class was male. At seminary, they literally wouldn't let women in because, again, it was kind of cultish and a little weird. I didn't like it so much, although, weirdly enough, the person who I did get along with the most was the woman I then went on to marry, and she definitely seemed to be one of the smartest people about theology that I knew at that time. So take that, all of my professors. Um, but importantly, too, like, even now, I've been going to play magic, because I am a gigantic dork and I will not apologize for it, with a bunch of dudes at a little gaming store out in northern New Jersey, and they're all dudes. All of them. The whole group. Not a woman to be found among them. And I know that women play magic. I've seen them do it. Um, but for some reason, they just don't hear Hopefully there's nothing toxic going on behind the scenes. I have not been a part of this group long enough to know what's going on there, but at any rate, it's kind of nice, to be perfectly honest. And if you're sitting there thinking, oh, Professor Kozlowski, you're such a prude. Why can't you appreciate? I get that. I understand. But at the same time, it goes the other way as well. Like, I had a conversation with my wife not too long ago about my grandmother, who recently passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and I loved my grandmother. I loved her to death. Like, we were two peas in a pod for quite a while. We had a lot of the same interests. I shared books with her. We shared a lot of insights. She was a really cool person. But I always felt like she was putting it on with me, if that makes sense. That she wasn't being entirely honest with me. Like, she didn't feel comfortable being entirely honest with me. And I always kind of regretted that. And then I talked to my wife about it, and she was like, oh, she was always really upfront with us. Like, she was always very willing to talk about, you know, her past romances and her, her private life. And I was like, really? Like, you had that relationship with my grandmother and I knew her for 30 plus years and never got that out of her? And she's like, well, she only trusted women with that information. And that struck me. Like, it's kind of a bummer, sure, but at the same time, I wasn't invited to that conversation. I shouldn't have been there. It was more comfortable for her to open up to my wife 
who she only knew for a couple of years, than it was to open up to me, who she'd known for many. That's kind of disappointing, but I really can't be upset about it. I have the same relationship with some of my guy friends, and my wife and I both have relationships with other people, friendships that are totally different from our, our marriage. Um, people who I hang out with who she doesn't care for so much, and people that she can't hangs out with that I don't care for so much. That's okay. Um, these friendships can exist along gender lines, as well as occasionally being across genders. So I want to stress that as much as Lewis is describing a phenomenon that may very well be sort of outmoded at this point, I also think it's not that cut and dry. Like, if you are in fact listening to this and you are a college student, you are probably mortified by this, because college is one of those places where the women and the men can absolutely interact with each other in a much more sort of egalitarian setting. I don't know whether it's just my experience. I hang out with too many Christians. That's entirely possible. We do definitely break along gender lines pretty dang frequently. Or if this really is something that just happens when you grow older, it gets easier to sort of hang out with other men when you were a man or hang out with other women if you were a woman. Maybe it's because of that whole sexual jealousy thing. Now that I'm married and nobody trusts me with other women, especially not single women, God forbid. It's complicated. It's very tricky. But what I want to stress is that both of these elements are present. I think there is a lot of truth to what C.S. Lewis has to say about his friendships with the other people he shares his interests with. I think there's something very true about his observations about how prehistoric man sort of would get together after the hunt and compare notes and like debrief each other on how it had gone and you know make fun of the guy who did the stupid thing and, and praise the guy who did the awesome thing. Like I think that that's a very dude kind of thing. Um, once again, I feel obliged to caution that from what I understand where men are often building friendships according to their similar interests, in my experience, women build their friendships according to similar disposition. Um, as the psychological text I quoted many, many moons ago at this point once said, you know, men sit shoulder to shoulder. They bond over video games. They bond over their mutual love of craft beers, or they bond over fixing a car together. Whereas women can literally just sit in a room and, like, talk. Weird. Um, so I hesitate to say that Lewis's take is normative, but so does he. He admits this is what dudes do. He assumes this is what women do as well in certain circumstances when they have a natural inclination to share something that they are interested in. So I hesitate to say that all friendship is based on interest. But I do tend to think that, at least for dudes, that is the case. Male friendships, male-to-male, heterosexual, male-to-heterosexual, male friendships are largely based around sort of common activities, whether it's video games or, you know, common interest in movies or football games or whatever. Um, I think this has very often been the case, and probably has been for a long, long time, if only because men were permitted those interests for longer than women have. I doubt it's that simple. But what I also want to sort of point out is where Lewis kind of goes with this. Lewis does not just praise friendship. He acknowledges the potential problems with it as well. Like, he characterizes it as a spiritual relationship, which is something fairly unique in this whole text. 
like of the four loves, affection, friendship, eros, or, or sexual love, and then charity, only friendship and charity get the spiritual nomenclature here. Um, he is saying that there is something unique about friendship, something unnatural about friendship, in the sense that man's rationality is unnatural, something that parallels civilization itself. He also stresses, you'll notice, that basically all groups of people who have a common interest are, at the end of the day, friends. Which is something I've emphasized as well. Like, when Aristotle is talking about, you know, how tyrants are particularly nervous around close friends because the friends might overthrow the tyrants, you know, it's really easy to see that reflected when Lewis starts talking about how the communists are just a group of people with the same friends, as are the capitalists, as are the, you know, Republicans and the Democrats. Like, all of these groups, all of these people who sort of gather around a common interest or a common set of convictions or a common belief or a common set of political ideals, these are, at the end of the day, friends. People united by the thing that they are interested in, by the thing that they share, these evident thing that they have in common. Now, that can be good, you know, a bunch of friends who get together to protest the injustice practiced by the American government towards black people give way to the civil rights movement, and that's a good thing. However, at the same front, a bunch of friends who get together in chat rooms and talk about how they're never going to ultimately have sex because they're completely unable to find, or they're completely incapable because of their various physical characteristics. I'm describing the incels, by the way, if you're not familiar. That can be really harmful, as can all the people who get together to talk about how race wars shouldn't happen or how to overthrow governments. It's tricksy. And I think the internet, if anything, makes it more tricksy. It makes it easier to find like-minded people, but it makes it just as easy to become insular. And notice that Lewis stresses this as well. The tendency of friendships toward insularity. The fact that all of these people who sort of set themselves up as we have this common interest which only we share and everyone else be damned ultimately end up reinforcing their convictions, become proud of their convictions, sort of elite in their beliefs or their similarities or their likes and dislikes. The fact that a whole bunch of artists who are out to protest how awful modern art has become ultimately have this sort of shared language, this shared set of experiences. Um, he uses the two examples, the one of the, the first time where he's like, walking in on this conference where two clergymen, obviously close friends, this is page 119, began talking about uncreated energies other than God. I asked how there could be any uncreated things except God if the creed was right in calling him the maker of all things visible and invisible. Their reply was to glance at one another and laugh. I had no objection to their laughter, but I wanted them to answer in words as well. It was not at all in a, in a sneering or unpleasant laugh. It expressed very much what Americans would express by saying, Isn't he cute? It was like the laughter of jolly grown-ups when an enfant terrible asks the sort of question that is never asked. You can hardly imagine how inoffensively it was done, or how clearly it conveyed the impression that they were fully aware of living habitually on a higher plane than the rest of us, of coming among us as knights among churls, or as grown-ups among children. This is a fairly common thing to happen. Like, if you 
thrust into somebody else's clubhouse and immediately start asking questions, you're likely to be laughed at in exactly this way. And it is likely to feel humiliating in some sense. Notice what the implication is, though. They're not doing it to be mean. They just have this insularity, this familiarity with their own ideas, this familiarity with the convictions, the decisions that they've made. And as a consequence, when an outsider comes in and reveals themselves to be an outsider, it's like, we've got to start from square one to get you up to speed. It's going to take too long. It's going to be impossible for us to get you there. And at the one time, this is nice, like... Lewis doesn't have a problem with the two clergymen saying this, but on the other hand, he also talks about the rodent. The sense of corporate superiority, he says on page 120, is not always Olympian, that is, tranquil and tolerant, and maybe titanic, restive, militant, and embittered. Another time when I had been addressing an undergraduate society in some discussion, very properly, followed my paper, a young man with an expression as tense as that of a rodent so dealt with me that I had to say, Look, sir, twice in the last five minutes you have as good as called me a liar. If you cannot discuss a question of criticism without that kind of thing, I must leave. I expected he would do one of two things, lose his temper and redouble his insults, or else blush and apologize. The startling thing is that he did neither. No new perturbation was added to the habitual malaise of his expression. He did not repeat the lie direct, but apart from that, he went on just as before. One had come up against an iron curtain. He was forearmed against the risk of any strictly personal relation, either friendly or hostile with such as me. Behind this, almost certainly, there lies a circle of the titanic sort, self-dubbed Knights Templars, perpetually in arms to defend a critical baphomet. We, who are they to them, do not exist as persons at all. We are specimens, specimens of various age groups, types, climates of opinion or interests to be exterminated. Deprived of one weapon, they coolly take up another. They are not, in the ordinary human sense, meeting us at all. They are merely doing a job of work, spraying, I have heard one use that image, insecticide. I want to dwell on this image, because I have experienced it personally, and I imagine you have as well. If the fundamental sort of relationship among groups of friends united by this common interest, as Lewis is describing it here, if their tendency is to pride in their own convictions and to the sort of elitism that appeals to them because they are, you know, just us against the world with all of its bad ideas, with all of its convictions, I want to stress that this, especially in the age of the internet, is so prevalent. This pride, this sort of holier-than-thou attitude, this, as Lewis is talking about it, you know, titanic kind of friendship, um, these people spraying insecticide, who are conv so convinced in their own rightness that there is literally no way to convince them otherwise. And Lewis uses this imagery here, and it's really hard for me to read this without thinking of the way that internet groups work nowadays. The way that the alt-right kind of just laughs at you and resumes using their particular language to talk about race war and, you know, conflict in, like, what the lies of the media are telling you or the, the conspiracy theories that they tend to adopt together. You know, that's one side of it just as much as the, the left tends to circulate all of their memes and somebody who just busts in and tries to you know, ask what they're all about just as met with laughter. It is so 
increasingly obvious that these kinds of groups, these kinds of attitudes, this pride and this, you know, elitism, this insularity is very much a part of our lives in a way that it wasn't, even in Lewis's time. Where for Lewis, that was a group of five, maybe six people who were doing that, and therefore effectively harmless. Now it can be hundreds. Like Lewis at the very beginning of his discussion says, you know, the number of friends, it's the more the merrier. You want to share with as many people as you possibly can, limited only by the logistics of the room and how loudly your voices can carry. We have now found a room where literally an infinite number of people can meet and their voices carry successfully. And the danger, then, is that we are all becoming friends with people we shouldn't be. Lewis stresses that friendship is neither good nor evil. It makes good people better, and it makes bad people worse. Unlike Aristotle and Cicero and company who argued that no vicious person can have friends, Lewis is of quite the opposite opinion. Bad people can be friends with other bad people because they share some of their badness in common. And when they practice their badness together, when they band together against the people who disagree with them, i.e. in this case, good people, then their badness just gets all the much more entrenched and impossible to unseat. Both the left and the right at this point seem for some mad reason to think that the best way to fight the other side is to call them idiots and to describe in great detail how ridiculous their positions are and to throw memes at one another and to just state outright what their opinions are without trying to meet in the middle, like the rodent kid at Lewis's discussion where, you know, Lewis says, you called me a liar twice in five minutes. That's not how it works. But because our friends in this sense have grown so numerous, so large, I think we've gotten to the point that we have confused our friends for the world. And that is a very dangerous confusion to make. And it will not help us to communicate or to improve our situations or to change minds. Friends, for Lewis, are something you have to do deliberately. Something that exists outside of you in some sense. And that's something that you have to go to and do. Increasingly, it seems like friends are something that are just constantly around us. That we are immersed in that. All that discussion of echo chambers and internet language, that's just talking about the same phenomenon that Lewis is describing here. Pride. Pride in one's convictions, a pride that is buttressed and reiterated by the people who share those convictions. We need to be careful of that. And we need to make our friends good friends and not bad ones. We need to make our friends behave well and not poorly. And we can't treat all outsiders as though they were all idiots and rubes and fools. They're not. And if we let them listen to their friends exclusively, they're never going to have their minds changed. They're never going to change their political opinions, and things aren't going to change globally either.
Over and over in this class, we've stressed that friendships have political significance. I think we've come to the end of that logical rationality, that train of thought. I think that the information we've been studying about friendship this entire time secretly applies to a lot more than we might have initially thought. Just as there are so many different kinds of love to be had. And as much as so many of those texts about friendship were, again, so similar, as Kant was pointing out, like rhetorical moralism, and as much as Lewis is in fact doing rhetorical moralism right here, I think his observations are really insightful and cast the entire discussion in a very new light. Who are our friends? Are they in fact the people who we are seeking virtue with, like Aristotle was saying? Or are they the people who we just agree with, and therefore can't bother to question? Are they the people who we listen to without any doubt? And how safe is it to do that? How much do we trust them, and how much do we trust ourselves? Be careful who your friends are, is basically all I'm going to say there. And I would rather you know them as well as Aristotle would suggest than to let them be baseless entities who you only know by the way they write. Alright, that's it. We had our Christendom Day. We did our Neo-Christianity. I hope that it was, in fact, informative and helpful and it was educational and wasn't just me spouting on about a couple of writers who I absolutely love, but who you don't really care for whatsoever. For next time, we are joining the philosophical canon. Once again, we are going to talk about feminism in our next discussion and how that evolves into the ethics of care, which I am admittedly very excited to talk about because the ethics of care is awesome. So I look forward to talking to you about, talking to you about that next time.